0: also be up on the screen but we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 12 uh, verses 1 through 8 the verse 8 uh, verses of Romans chapter 12 in the last uh, 6 months or so we have been walking through uh, the book of Romans we have looked at the first 11 chapters in detail and it's very important as we come to Romans chapter 12 that we know the context of th- this letter that was written by the apostle Paul Because it is fueling chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15. If you take these apart, it's actually very dangerous for a Christian. But we need to understand the context of Romans chapter 1 through 11. When chapter 1, we see that the gospel the righteousness of God is found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, Chuck has said this over and over again, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that God did not create a sinful world. He created a perfect world, and sin entered the picture because of humanity. So now each and every one of us are born into sin. As the letter goes on, we see that the righteousness of God is not simply what is required of us, to be righteous, but it's what he grants to us through his son Jesus by having faith in him that the Lord acquits our punishment because the punishment was given to someone else, namely Jesus Christ, his son. And by faith in Christ, we are reconciled to him, and we enjoy a restored relationship, one that was broken prior to that due to sin. Now we belong to Christ, and we are free from the bondage of sin. And in chapter 10, specifically more recently, he has told us that God freely offers us this in the gospel, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That in Christ we are saved not by any work that we do, but by the righteousness that is given to us in Christ. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So here, when we come to chapter 12 in the book of Romans, it's coming in a specific context. And he's talking about what the implications are for you believer, you Christian, you person who has received mercy. What are the life implications for you as one who has received the mercy of Christ so we see the truth of 11 chapters fueling this call to action in chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15. You can't reverse those two things or it's dangerous. We can't say that we're going to do these things in chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15 so we receive mercy. That's not what the gospel says in any part of the Bible. But the first 11 chapters are fueling where we are today. Okay. All right, so let's go ahead and read the text. We're in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, we come before you now, humbled that you have bestowed upon us your mercy through the bloodshed of your own Son, Jesus Christ. And humbled, we are also grateful, for you paid a debt we could never pay. So now that we, as we come to Romans chapter 12, that we look at what the implications are for our life today, how we are to live out of the people that we have been made to be in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be reminded that our hope is not in our own performance or works, but our hope is in your son, Jesus Christ. And through that, we would be fueled to live for you. Father, be with us this morning. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So a few years ago, a psychologist, Ruth, Berenda, and her associates, they carried out an interesting experiment with teenagers. And it was designed to show how a person handled group pressure. The plan was simple. They brought groups of 10 adolescents into a room for a test. And subsequently, or beforehand, each group of 10 was instructed to raise their hand when the teacher pointed to the longest line on three separate charts. What one person in the group did not know was that nine of the others in the room had been instructed ahead of time to vote for the second longest line. That would be unfortunate to be that tenth person. Regardless of the instructions they heard, once they were all together in the room, the nine were not to vote for the longest line, but rather vote for the next to longest line. The experiment began with nine teenagers voting for the wrong line, and the tenth person would typically glance around, frown in confusion, and slip his hand up with the group. The instructions were repeated, and the next card was raised time after time. The self-conscious tenth person would sit there saying a short line is longer than a long line simply because he lacked the courage to challenge the group. This, remarkably, this remarkable conformity occurred in over 75% of the cases and it was true of small children and high school students as well, and Brenda, the psychologist, concluded that some people had rather be president than they would be right. Conforming to those around us happens easier and quicker than we like to admit, And it's not only teens, we can poke fun at that while their brains aren't fully developed yet, they don't understand, but I would actually go at the notion that if 10, 50-year-olds were put in the same position, we would have the same outcome. It's not only teens who conform to those around us, but we all do this in some way. Even as people who follow Christ, we often conform our lives to the culture around us. One theologian says this, each age or culture has a prevailing worldview, an interpretation of the world and the best way to live in it. The wisdom of each culture aligns with Scripture at some points and clashes at others. This is inevitable since biblical truth never changes and culture changes continually. Every culture conflicts with kingdom values at some point. So today in our passage, we're going to see that we need The lens of Scripture to tell what the passage says is good and acceptable and perfect in the Lord's eyes. In the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus is surrounded by the false devotion of both the Pharisees on one side and the pagans on the other. And Jesus said to his disciples, don't be like them, either of them. The disciples must be willing to stand against the dominant culture because this is often what happens. I need you to hear this. Whatever is common seems normal, and whatever is normal seems right. That will be weaved into your life if you do not fight against it. That's what the Apostle Paul here is helping us with. That we are not to be like a chameleon who takes on the color from its surroundings. We need the wisdom of Christ to discern what is good and holy in our time and what is unholy and dishonoring to the Lord so we don't conform to the culture in unbiblical ways. So we're going to be answering one big question today. It's up on the screen for you here. It's also We have an outline printed in your bulletin as well. But it's this question. In light of God's mercy, how are we to live in our post-Christian culture? In light of God's mercy, how are we to live in our post-Christian culture? We're first going to look at renewing the mind in verses 1 and 2, and secondly, reversing self-centeredness, verses 3 through 8. You know, as Chuck has preached through the first 11 chapters, uh, and I would dip in with Psalms once in a while, and now I'm doing Romans with him, I've realized how difficult it is to preach Romans' big swaths of Scripture, so... Um, I got to verses 1 through 2, and I had written what I usually write for a sermon. It was longer than my whole sermon normally. So I will promise to get out of here before 1 o'clock, okay? Just kidding. I parted down. There's a lot here, so we're going to kind of go fast through it, okay? So first, renewing your mind, verses 1 through 2. Second, reversing self-centeredness in verses 3 through 8 is where we'll be going today, okay? So we need to start again with context because that's what the Apostle Paul actually does. In verse 1, he says this. He begins this section, this chapter, with these words. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The mercies of God. So in Romans 12, we see that he has, for 11 chapters, talked about strong indicatives, strong truth about what has happened in humanity and God's solution for it. And here, in chapter 12, he's calling people to action. To, he's imp, have, it's strong imperatives Calling redeemed Christians who have redeemed, who have received mercy to live in a way that is honoring to Christ. In Paul, in 12:1, Paul begins by rooting the implications of life change to the mercy of God. That divine mercy, it motivates Christian obedience. Stott says this: the ground of Paul's appeal is indicated by his use of the conjunction, therefore. And by his reference to God's mercy. For 11 chapters, Paul has been unfolding the mercies of God. Indeed, the gospel is precisely God's mercy to inexcusable and undeserving sinners in giving his son to die for them, in justifying them freely by faith, in sending them his life giving spirit, and in making them his children. In particular, the key word in Romans 9 through 11 is. Mercy. For salvation depends not on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And his purpose is to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy. So this word mercy is a link to the first 11 chapters fueling the imperatives where we're going today. Okay? So let's look, verses 1 through 2, renewing the mind. Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So once he gets past the introduction, he says, present your body as a living sacrifice. Throughout all of Scripture, we see calls by different authors telling the people to present your mind, present your heart, present your body to the Lord. Now, all of these three Terms refer to this, the whole being, the whole person, dedicated to the good of the king. And this idea, he's saying, present your whole body, all of yourself, all of your life, as a living sacrifice. The idea of a living sacrifice is not a one-and-done sacrifice. It is a sacrifice that goes on for your entire lifetime. So what Paul is starting with here is that your entire being, For your entire life is in service to Christ. That these sacrifices are holy and acceptable. Two words that are getting at the same idea. Sacrifices made in life that are set apart, not from the world, not getting outside of the world and getting in our own bubble and staying away, but set apart within the world. That we are fully to engage in our surroundings, in our own time and place, affirming the good things that you see around you. And shunning the sin and the folly. We see at the end of this verse, it says, all of this is your spiritual worship. This word rendered spiritual is uncommon in the New Testament. It's only used one other time. And so we have to look outside of this context And most commonly, people would render this word reasonable. It is your reasonable worship. So think about the context, chapters 1 through 11. He's saying all this, you have received mercy through Christ. And it is your reasonable worship. It's reasonable for you to respond in this way. For all of your life, your entire being, for your entire life to be in service to Christ. That is what is reasonable for a believer. He goes on in verse 2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We see in verse 1, he's he's calling us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. In verse 2, he's explaining how to do this, how to obey the commands. This idea of world could be also rendered age or the loyalties of the time in which we live in that each age will have their own convictions and loyalties. And Paul's warning here is for people who have received mercy not to be conformed to, by the convictions and loyalties of the current age because the Christians' convictions and loyalties do not lie with the culture. They lie in the scriptures, with Christ. So believers are to be transformed by the renewal of their mind. I want you to notice that this verb, be transformed, it's it's passive, which meaning it's happening from the outside to us. We're being transformed by someone else. We know that it is the Lord who transforms us. It is the Lord who sanctifies us. But at the same time, we must cooperate. We must be active in our own sanctification. We know it is the work of God, but at the same time, the transformation comes by reading the Scriptures, by studying them, by participating in your own renewal. It is God who transforms, but Paul is calling believers to participate, to engage in their growth to read and meditate on the Word, to listen to good teaching, by reading spiritual books, by being in a community with other people that will help you apply the gospel to your life. He's saying, believer, let your mind be transformed so that you may, this is the outcome, discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So when the Lord transforms your mind, you can now be- begin to discern what is good and pleasing and acceptable to God. You can look at the culture around you. You can see, oh, that, that over there, that's good and beautiful that the culture is affirming. That's good. And as Christians, often we have a hard time doing this, right? Right? We have a hard time saying, oh, anything out there is good. But I would challenge us to say a lot of what goes on out there is good. Not everything. You can't go on either extreme and say everything's good or everything's bad. That's really dangerous. But we need to be able to see with eyes of discernment through the Scripture what is good and beautiful in the culture. At the same time, what is dishonoring to God, what needs to be challenged. When you see those things that need renewal, That's where the church goes. That's where the church should be. Not running away from it. Affirming the good in the culture and running towards what needs renewal. We are agents of the gospel. Agents of God's kingdom coming to the world and we need to run to those things. Often we run away from them. We need to run towards them. One of my... Seminary professors wrote a commentary on the book of Romans that I've been using, and he tells a story of a monk. His name is Telemachus, and he thought that God had called him to Rome to protest the iniquity in that city. This conviction led him to follow the crowd into the Colosseum on a day appointed for the games. As the crowd watched the two gladiators fight to the death, Telemachus leapt into the arena and implored them to stop. Can you guess what the result was? Well, there are two versions of what happened next. One says that the gladiators stopped fighting briefly, they killed him, and then they returned to combat. The second says that spectators stoned him using loose rocks from the crumbling Colosseum. And one might hope that this happened before Christianity became the empire's leading religion in A.D. 312, or when Christianity became its official religion in 380. But alas, the deadly games continued for decades. Respected citizens even found ways to justify the customs of watching men slaughter each other as entertainment. When Telemachus arrived in AD 390. Christians held positions that should have empowered them to close the games, but it is hard to eradicate tradition. Christian leaders condemned the games and forbade attendance, but their exhortations had limited effects until Telemachus' sacrificial work. It galvanized the opposition. He took his stand in 391, and Rome's gladiatorial contest finally ended in 404. Telemachus resisted the age and it eventually changed. We often hear stories outside of our own time and say, how could those people do that? How could people go and watch two people slaughter each other? Yet in our own time, we're often blind in our own giving way to the culture. We go along with the status quo because, remember, whatever is common seems normal. Whatever is normal seems right. How do we fight this? The passage today begins with saying that we need to present ourselves for the renewal of your mind. That it first needs to begin with prioritizing spiritual growth. That's what the text is telling us. That while we understand that it is the Lord who brings transformation, it does not negate our need to put time and effort into our own growth. It's not letting go and let God. That is not biblical at all. We need to put time and effort into growing closer to the Lord. It tells us, the Bible tells us that Scripture is living and active. So our first priority in our life should be to spend time in the Word, to read consistently, to digest, to read study notes, to seek to understand God's Word. While doing this, good to find people in the church in your life group other christians outside of this body even to help you understand and apply it to your life that gaining knowledge from the scriptures is not an end to itself we love theology in this church in this denomination it's not an end to itself if it's not doing something begin with except for landing here and it's not motivating your life then it's null and void You need to do something with it. You apply scripture to every arena in your life. So when you study it, when the spirit begins to renew your thinking, our call is to apply it to all of life. I grew up in the church. My mom said that the first time I went to the nursery, I was two weeks old. I don't know how safe that is now that I look back on it, but I was there. I've been in church forever, right? I know all the Christian answers, But I want to challenge all of us, especially us who have been in the church for many, many years, to make sure the way that we are thinking is in line with Scripture. The fights that we are fighting, are they the fights that Jesus would have fought? Often, cultural values are weaved into our belief system about what is good and true and we don't even see it. I'm talking about myself also. So when you hear something on the news in a podcast from a friend, you think, that is good and true. That's right. I want you to check that. Why do I think this is true? Why do I think this is good? Do you have a biblical framework for explaining what is good and true? Can you apply biblical knowledge to the cultural situation you are thinking of? Or it's always been good and true. You need to assess because the cultural values can so easily get weaved into the Christian's heart. We need to go back to the Scriptures, find out what the Lord says about the issue, more likely a surrounding issue, a broader issue. Remember, each and every culture will have its own convictions and loyalties. Some will overlap with Scripture. Say, That's good and beautiful, and some will not. They will outright deny what the Scripture says. But through the renewal of the Holy Spirit... We'll be able to discern between the two. Okay, secondly, let's look at reversing self-centeredness. This is verses 3 through 8. So verse 1 exhorts Christians to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. And verse 2 goes on to explain how they are to do this by the renewal of their mind. And verses 3 through 8 does something very similar as verse 2 that it says how we are to present our bodies means viewing ourselves rightly reversing self-centeredness. So verse 3 says this, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So now we're not only to look out at the world with sober judgment, with a biblical lens, but we're also to look to ourselves with the same lens. Verses 3 through 4 exhorts the reader to have a renewed mind, not only thinking about the world and the culture, the age, but also of oneself. Stott, in his commentary, says this, in thinking about ourselves, we must avoid both too high an estimate of ourselves, and Paul might have added too low an estimate. Instead, and positively, we are to develop sober judgment. Remember the first 11 chapters of Romans tells us, if we've listened at all for six months, that we can only stand on the righteousness of Christ, that we are not the center of the universe by any means, that God is always the, hear of the hero of the story. But at the same time, this is not to say that we aren't important to God. Remember, God values us so much that He sent us sent His very Son To take our penalty. So we should not think too lowly of ourselves. At the same time, we should not think too highly of ourselves. We are to have sober judgment of our very selves. Verse 4, he goes on. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually, members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So in having the proper understanding of ourselves, seeing the abilities, the giftings, the time that God has given us, presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice, that means we're going to use those abilities, that time, the talent to build up one another. When we give into the note, uh, we can easily give into the cultural norm in this specific area. Right? What does a cultural norm say about you? You are number one in your life. You are most important. Do whatever makes you successful, you happy. But the text here does not say that, does it? No. It says you need to use your gifts to build up other people. Use the abilities that God has given you to build up others. So when we have sober judgment, when we view ourselves as God does, we will understand that God has only given us these abilities, this talent, treasure, and time to be a steward. They're actually it's all, all His. Everything is His. So how we steward these things, are we gonna use them for our own gain? Because that's what the culture is gonna tell you. That's the American dream. Are we going to strive after that? Or are we going to use these things for the kingdom, for others? Paul goes on. He gives us uh, an image of the body. And this is also given in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And the idea brings forth the lesson that as in the human body, the one entity, one body, it has many different members. And this is representative of the church. And these different members have different functions. And in this, each member is to use their own abilities to serve and promote the well-being of themselves. Is anyone awake? That's not what the text says. It says this. They're to use their abilities for the good of others, for the good of the church. In other words, Paul is showing us that we need each other here. I teach the children's communicant class, and I actually use that 1 Corinthians 12 passage to talk to the kids about how important they are. And I give them these silly illustrations. What if your whole body was an ear? And they're like, you know, kids are like, what an ear. That would not be any fun at all. How would I play with my friends? That's what he's saying in this very passage. We, we need each other. But if the church, if the ear is going to use its function for some other body, What's the body going to do? They won't be able to hear. The body needs each member to pour into it, to pour into other people to flourish. That's how it was intended to function. So to present yourself as a living sacrifice, in verses 3 through 6, it's to use your abilities for the building up of others and for the body of Christ. Paul goes on to verses 6 through 8. I promise I'm not going to look at every single one. There's seven different giftings here, and this is one of several lists in the New Testament that's very similar to this. You should know that often we'll go to lists like this and say, well, I don't have any of these seven things, so geez, who am I, right? But none of these lists in any of the writings are supposed to be precise or exhaustive for how God has gifted his people, but simply a sampling of how God equips his people. So the point of this section is not to say this gift and this gift and this gift. These are the seven best. No, the point is that when God's people receive mercy and respond by offering themselves to the Lord, they are to use the gifts that God has given them, which will be different for every single person, I guarantee it, in this room, for the building up of the church and the building up of others. But this in itself has to go back to the beginning. It takes the renewal of the mind. Because the culture says that you and me, we are number one. I am very guilty for this. That's why I keep saying it to you so we can all remember that we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. If you think about yourself today, how are you using your own abilities and time and treasures that God has given you? We're called as stewards of our time, of our talent, of our treasures. That God has given these abilities to you and they can actually be taken away as easily as they were given. But God has made you a steward. He's made you an individual made in a specific way with with specific talents for the good of the kingdom. How will you steward those things? In passages like Romans 12, they help us how to see, how to live our faith out, right? I told you it was a lot of imperative, the whole thing. I I wrestled over this a lot. It's really heavy. At the same time, I know, and I hope that you know, that all of us, as we strive to do these things, will continue to fail. There will be days that you don't read your Bible in the next week, I promise. Maybe not week, month. There will be days when you continue to fail, So our hope can never be, ever be in our performance, for we will always fail. Yet, we need not be discouraged, because we serve a God who never fails us. He saw our failure in the garden, and at the same time, he saw the one who would not fail in bringing salvation. From our text today, we see, we can apply all of this to Jesus and know that He will never fail us. That Jesus Christ, God's own Son, He presented His body as the perfect living sacrifice. His mind was not need of, in need of renewal, for He had never had a sinful thought. Jesus discerned the will of God, which was to lay Himself on the altar as the final sacrifice. Jesus is God, the Son in the flesh, good and acceptable and perfect in the sight of God. Jesus thought of himself with sober judgment, knowing that he was the Son of God, yet laid himself down for you and me. And lastly, Jesus used his abilities for others, namely his perfect nature to satisfy the demands of the law and his perfect obedience to take the penalty that we deserved. So as Paul has exhorted us this morning, God's people to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Remember, this is simply a response to the divine mercy that has been given to us through Christ. May we always rest in him and find our hope in his work on our behalf. Let's pray. God, we come before you humbled by this call to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, knowing that that is exactly what your son did, what you sent him to do, that he was the living sacrifice in which we live and breathe now. Father, as we come to your table, we pray that you would be here with us, reminding us of your mercy you have bestowed on us so lavishly in your son Jesus Christ. Father, let us not despair of our own shortcomings, but be reminded that our hope is in Jesus Christ. We come to this table now to celebrate him. In the precious name of Jesus we pray, amen.